Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways to Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, your Second World War podcast for all your Second World War needs. Jim, um, well, we're both very, very busy. Uh, and I've been... Uh, I I, well, I don't think we've ever been busy, have we? Well, I don't we've think we've ever been busy. In the yeah. four years. Yeah, I know. It's extraordinary, really. And I've been... You've been sending photos from bloody tank fest and i've been i've been yeah that's quite like, nice i was actually brimful of jealousy well uh, i didn't know what to do i didn't know whether it was better to kind of not annoy you or or, or, or share my clear scene at churchill in action I, I didn't know quite what to do and i plumped for the kind of oh fuck it. i'm sorry excuse me um <laughs> oh sod it i'll um i'll send you the picture of the church on the panzer free and the things I, that that churchill's the one with the, with the, the gear blue, box blew up on two or three years ago isn't it Right. And, they've, and they've had to restore it and they had to they had to have new parts made and all this sort of stuff um because the because the obviously they don't exist anymore so that that's a hell of a thing to have seen it really it really was uh, and it was fantastic and it really sort of clacked you know there's a sort of clacking that goes yes. on with, with, with tanks and that's obviously because of the tracks all those yeah. sort of moving, moving plates going around yeah so you do get this sort of click 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 click, click kind of sort of thing and, and you really felt it felt it with that but then afterwards i got chatting to nigel montgomery um i, I don't think any relation but but he owns it and it's his baby and he's incredibly modest about it he doesn't want it to all be about him or anything like that um yeah. and, and um he gets well it's nothing to do with me i mean i'm you know i'm just a sort of the guardian that kind of stuff yeah yeah anyway he, he was absolutely delightful i mean he's a really really nice guy and i said yeah. oh come on come on the pod and tell us all about churchills and tell us about the project and how you got yeah. it he's got three <laughs> no yes he's got three they're all they're all a bobbington but but um you know he had a stint in the army a while Did, uh, you are know, they all runners and then are they all runners? no, or, no they're, they're not but they're just he he's he was a really really nice fellow i really warmed to him immediately and um i i got i got his promise that he'd he'd come on the podcast as brilliant uh so it was great it was great to it was great to meet him and i met all sorts of um, amazing people there um and um i really really enjoyed it i mean it was just heaving with people um yeah. lots of people were telling me that they enjoyed the the pod which was nice that's nice um so so it was very nice to hear that and anyway they're looking for richard smith is moving on having been there yeah. for 17 years and completely transformed it i mean yeah, yeah. what a different different beast he leaves um and obviously he, those will be very very big boots to fill he's a, a, a i don't know how many people who listen to this have actually been down to the tank museum or indeed have met richard but he's he's just such a lovely boy he's a great enthusiast his yeah. dad is a kind of very highbrow um academic um oxford don um yeah. and he's just a really lovely chap he's got loads of energy and and a, a great fellow so he'll be really really sadly missed but anyway, i met the guy who's headhunting it and he's looking for um looking for a new uh, a new director so i said well you know how and i you know we'd like to sort of put our, <laughs> our hat in the ring you know maybe come as a double x why not and he went mm, uh, yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> you, you can see him thinking are they kind of serious 
<laughs> well, kind of, yeah. I mean, if we uh, got the job, you'd be serious about it, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, you definitely, definitely would. But you know, it's a sort of you know, d- d- decent comes with a decent pay packet. You know, get yeah. thanks. I mean, you know, on one level, what's not to like? Yeah, anyway, yeah, they're, yeah. They're looking for a new a new person. But I said we'd love to. We'd 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 welcome the opportunity to support the Tank Museum more. Is what I said. Yes, I think that's. I think that I couldn't put. Well, that, that was a diplomatic answer. I could have put that more perfectly. You, you, so you sent pictures of the Panzer Three as well, which looked really natty. Yeah, well, I've got, see for me the Panzer Three is is that's the tank I like most out of all the German arsenal. Right, it's the most reliable. It's the simplest to make. You know, if you apply the whole kind of if it looks right, it probably flies right principle yeah. to to aircraft. I think you can sort of do that to tanks as well. Yeah, and 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 the Panzer three just looks really good. Yeah, you know, it looks good. It sounds good. It's just I don't know. And did they have the Comet out as well? Yeah, but I didn't see that in action. Right, because that I think that um, fits into that um, exact same sort of vibe. Because that yeah. looks right. And uh, although obviously, you know, it's too late, turned up too late. Um, but I mean, the last time I went, I remember they, they they wheeled the tiger out, and and there was a lot of there was a lot of sort of tiger filia going on the last time I was there. Was it still that well, same vibe? This was, this was really interesting because they were saying, well, it all used to be all to be about the tiger and everyone, you know, and everyone had this fetish for the tiger. We said, but in recent years, it's really, really picked up on British armour and, and just allied armour and they love it. Oh, that's mm. good to know. Yeah, really, I mean, really good to know. Yeah, I mean, especially given, um, you know, that the, the, sto- the story has to have more than tigers in it, doesn't it, really? Otherwise, well, yeah, it does really. Well, they did this great skit on the kind of Desert War. So they had, you yeah. know, they had Matilda too, which looked great. Yeah. Actually, again, just look better than you think it does. <laughs> you know, suddenly I could see those pictures from the Western Desert. Yeah. You know, the tank commander and his beret and the kind of pennants flying off the top of the radio aerials yeah. and the rest of it. You could just sort of see it. And, uh, and you had the Panzer three, and you had then you had the Churchill, because obviously that was Tunisia. Um, yeah. And they were saying, they made a big point. You know, we always go on about the church. This was in the commentary. They say, you know, we talk a lot about the about the tiger, but of course, you know, what was it that was there to counteract the tiger? Well, it was the Churchill and... yeah. You know all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was, it was just fascinating. It was really, really, really good to see it. And you felt you were seeing sort of really rare stuff that you don't normally yeah. see. I mean, you know, never get get bored of watching Shermans. But but by the same token, they're sort of slightly to a penny compared with Matilda yeah. twos and running Panzer threes and certainly yeah. Churchills. So yeah. it was great. I loved oh, good. it. I thought it was really, really fantastic. Oh. They were all sort of beetling around. And, you know, a friend of the show, Keith Brigstock, was there with the garrison and they were kind of firing their two pounders. And oh, I wasn't, I had forgotten they were there. And I wasn't really, I sort of slightly switched off. I was looking for Guy Walters, who was supposed to be meeting me there. Right. Suddenly this thing goes off. I can't only jump six foot. I mean, <laughs> it kind of feels like the, the two pounder punches above its weight. It's certainly yeah. sad, in terms yeah. of sound. <laughs> anyway, how have you been? I mean, I've, I still feel I haven't seen you for ages. Well, I mean, I've been, we've been very busy on the, on the, on the play and it, and, and, um, uh, well, I love that little video you sent of you being yes, st- being run through. <laughs> yeah. It was very good. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? it? Like and- Neil Morrissey was struggling to keep it serious. <laughs> well, we're all struggling to keep it seriously, to be honest, which is just as well because it is a it is a comedy. But yes, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to let too much light into the magic, but basically, that's a funnel on a pipe. The funnel is to make sure he definitely gets the sword in the pipe rather than through me. It does look quite spectacular. It's quite spectacular in the moment. Yes, for what we're trying to do. Um, but yes, I've been very, very busy, very busy with that. It's been, it's, it's been, it's been extremely tense. It's also also made me start to wonder about essentially underprepared I am when I do stand up <laughs> relatively <laughs> compared to theatre. 
<laughs> you know, so do you think being an actor is harder work than you thought? It's not that it's harder work. It's that it's um, uh, uh, of a different sort of... It, it's different to what I thought it would be like. I mean, what's quite funny, though, is, you know, the last the last proper plays I did was... I mean, we're at school more than, you know, 35 years ago, whatever. And Monday, we did a stagger through of Act 1 and then on Monday, the stagger through of Act 2 on Tuesday. And basically, we were at school play level <laughs> at the start of this week. You know, we that, you could have put that on and everyone would have gone, gosh, school play's good this year. But, but we, need to, we need to go up a fair few gears from there. But, I mean, it, yeah, it's a tremendous... Thing is, it is a tremendous story. And the um, that someone did manage to steal the crown jewels in 1671 to get their get their hands on them is 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 boggling, really. Yeah, and, and also shows that that you know the permanent tumult in Britain um, in the in the 17th century. That, 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 that yes, there yes, you have Charles the Charles the Second, and things are supposedly back on track. But that that decade alone, play great fire war with the Dutch. Yep. You know, endless. There's endless turmoil and tumult. Yeah, no, yeah, it, isn't there? Just... There's no sort of there's no sort of plateau after the interregnum. It, it, no. It, anyway, have but... you read Devil Land by Claire Jackson? No, I've not. No. Okay. Well, I think you're in for a bit of a treat with that one. Right, so okay. really, really, really good book. She's an academic at, at, at Cambridge, but she can write really, really nicely. She doesn't. She knows when it's yeah. academic and when it's not. Yeah. And this is a kind of mass market popular history. Right. And it is about Britain in the 17th century. Right. So it goes everything from you know sixteen oh three all the way all the way through, right. and so you do get exactly what you're just talking about that big yeah. sweep, and it's called Devil Land. But also, <laughs> this weekend, I mean, the the events, I mean, the events in in U- well, not in Ukraine. That's the thing in in, in Russia. Absolutely we- extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. You can see that that that. Um, Yevgeny Prigozhin has been building up for this for a while. I mean, he's been yeah. ranting and raving, hasn't he, on social media yeah. for quite a long time, looking very, very angry. Personally, I wouldn't want to cross him. No. Um, I'll just get that out there right now. <laughs> You're not going to invite him next year to chalk if he has a book. <laughs> well, I then called up with PCA yesterday, who um, I got him on the phone. I was playing cricket, actually. It was rather nice. Um, yeah. And finally managed to get some runs as well, uh, oh, which was uh, really Literally the week before, I was threatening to give up forever. Um, right. Obviously, so it's quite funny actually because I, I, I got back at sort of innings break, and I, I told I told on the Holland's family WhatsApp group that I I got some runs, and Daisy went, "Oh, that's really great news," and Ned went, "Yay," and Rachel went, "Oh no." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she knows me so well. Anyway, uh, that's by the way. But anyway, so in the in the kind of innings break, I was talking to PCA, who has been in hospital again, unfortunately. Yeah. But he's out again, and um, yeah. he's going to be at the Chalk Festival this week, which is great. So it'd be nice to catch up for him. And I was going, God, yeah. you know, what do you think? What's going on here? And he says, he said, Well, I think Putin's just sitting back and watching this. He he, he said, said Putin would have known that Prigozhin was going to do this. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's other stuff going on. He said all the commentary is from the West. Yeah, and 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 he said before you make any comment on it at all, you've got to, you, you just just wait. And literally, you know, two hours later, when I switched on the news on my way back from the cricket, you know, a deal has been done. He's going to Belarus yeah. and all this sort of stuff. His view is that he thinks this is against the oligarchs and against the against the leadership, which Putin wanted as an excuse to get rid of people anyway. Right. Okay. He may be right. He may be wrong. I don't know. But 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 just don't know. Master uh, You know, there's all that kind of stuff going on. Yeah. But anyway, right. whatever you, whichever way you look at it, it's still absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? You can't over overplay this. But the sort of bit that was reminding me of of events during the Second World War was the idea of you know Moscow being put under martial law. You know, Valkyrie. 
style. Mm. That, yeah. You know, that, you know what I mean? That, that, that there's a, in the capital, what you, what you do when there's an attempt, an attempt on the leadership is you mobilize home army or whatever. And that, that was the sort of, that was the flavor I was getting yesterday morning before we discovered that, that, like, as you say, a deal had been done. But this idea of independent actors within, within a state is, is, that's not, not unlike, say, the SS, is it? Who are, they're political, they're an army. There are, are they, uh, where, what's their actual relationship with the leadership and the existing army? It's, they are a mercenary army, but it's well, very, it's very blurred and there's obviously a hell of a lot of state funding going into it yeah. and all the rest of it. I mean, I mean, cause, cause Tony, our producer says, said, oh, let's talk about, about Popsky's private army. Popsky's private army is a, is a total red herring, really. Yeah. So uh, that's not the comparison. I, I, I think, I think the Waffen SS is, <laughs> is a much closer comparison. Because it is separate from the armed forces, but it's integrated yeah. into it. Yeah. So it is. It is. It is the. It is the martial forces of the National Socialists of the Nazi Party. Yeah. But it is used and incorporated into the Wehrmacht. Yeah. Um, in pretty much the same way that the Wagner Group is. I mean, yeah. the Wagner Group is not the military arm of Putin. No. But it sort of might as well be. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it yeah. sort of is, isn't it? Yeah. And it's certainly separate from from the Russian army in the same way that the Waffen-SS was separate from the German army. Yes. But is obviously fighting alongside the Russian army as the Waffen-SS was fighting alongside the Wehrmacht. Yeah. So, so I think that's a – it's not an exact comparison, but it, but it is. And it's really interesting because one of the things that struck me was how well-equipped the Wagner group is. And another comparison, of course, is that, you know, if you're look, particularly if you're looking at the early Waffen-SS – they get the first dips. So, so one of the, one of the frustrations of, you know, they are not in good, you know, the Totenkopf and, um, the, the, the Liebstandarte Adolf Hitler, which are the two Waffen SS divisions used in the, in the Blitzkrieg in the West in 1940, for example, mm. they are not included in the number of panzer divisions. No. When you're talking about the German army and how many panzer divisions yeah. they are, that doesn't include those two. So effectively, yeah. instead of sort of 16 or whatever it is, it's 18. Yeah. Because they are, uh, and what's really interesting, you know, if you look at the Totenkopf, which is the third SS Panzer Division, um, you know, that's commanded by Theodor Eicher, Papa yeah. Eicher, yeah. sort of make him sound like a sort of cozy avuncular figure. I mean, obviously, he couldn't be anything less. I mean, you know, he was a street thug, yeah. worked at the ranks, you know, was in command of Dachau, I think. Yeah. You know, that's where he learned his roads. And all the uh, and most of the people in the Totenkopf are drawn from the camps and street fighters and all the rest of it. Yeah. And their training is really not very good because how German divisions work is is that they you train from your division. There's no kind of there is a standardization to a certain extent, but yeah. but it is your divisional unity that that does the yeah. organizes the training. You have these kind of Einsatz divisions yeah. and then they kind of develop. But but none of that with the Totenkopf. They're just kind of right, let's let's become a, a proper frontline unit and let's crack on. And there's yeah. some NCOs there who've been NCOs in the First World War and yeah. that kind of stuff. And there's a bit of stuff. But they're all kind of making up as they go along. But they're getting all the best kit. Because they're yeah. the Waffen SS, so they're yeah. they're absolutely armed to the gunnels with half tracks and you know, but but, but unlike unlike bikes the and group, Panzers and everything else, but but unlike the Wagner Group, they're they're not necessarily drawing from prisons and stuff like that, which is the what we we seem to hear about Wagner. There is the criminal end of things, isn't there? The, the actually criminal end of stuff in in the Waffen SS. It is interesting though, because you know the, the other point of comparison is is Himmler trying to take independent political action at the end of the war, isn't it? Where where 
he's thinking, well, it's all gone wrong. So how do I position myself for afterwards and trying to strike up his own negotiating positions and trying to use his own bargaining power with the allies? So so because that's after all the Himmler, Himmler is loyal up to the point that he isn't loyal, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, they all are like that. Well, well they? exactly. They all, well, the, only, well, the only two go to the end are Goebbels and, and yeah. Woman. Yeah, exactly. But but you but you, but you know what I mean. And and, and Himmler, Himmler at least Himmler has this power base. I suppose Goering Goering as well has yeah. a, has his power base. And it, I mean, I suppose this is the nature of the of, of states where there's uh, well, I mean, this is a byproduct after all the way Hitler's run things, where people are people are all kept on level pegs so they would compete with each other. So they develop their own power bases. So when the when things start going wrong, they lean into their power bases to to try and extricate themselves from the mess so i suppose suppose there is a par- there is a parallel there i mean w- w- without without overdoing it i i mean i thought the, the sort of peter's right we just don't know at all what's going on but i think that's also really that's also analogous is the allies don't know really what's going on inside the german leadership and i think you know one of the one of the pictures we've painted for ourselves in the second world war is thanks to thanks to ultra we know rommel goes for a dump or whatever i mean i've had someone say that to me <laughs> I've had someone basically say that to me on Twitter, you know, well, you know, but, but thanks to, our, you know, and, and that's not, that's just not the case. And, the, you know, part of the reason for demanding an unconditional surrender is that it means you aren't subject to the internal wranglings within Nazi Germany that you know nothing about. Yeah. You place a single non-negotiable um, aim uh, politically because, because, because you don't know what's going on inside Germany. Um, yes. And you you don't know who's lukewarm, who's detaching themselves from the le- leadership, who's loyal, how loyal they are, and all those sort of things. And you don't want to get you don't want to get caught up in it either. Which no. is why, after all, the, the Ukrainians are saying, for similar reasons, the U- Ukrainians are saying, you know, leave, leave, and then we'll do a peace deal. There's no negotiation now. You know that that that's because Russia's chaotic in the way that, or appears to be, because we don't know. And I think, you know, I think you've always got to come back around to what Peter's saying. Is we, we, we're viewing it from, from our perspective completely. Yeah, what you do know, though, is that the, the supply lines to the Russian front are uh, in Ukraine are massively compromised. The one from the yeah. Crimea is compromised. Yeah. You know, so their supply issue is a problem. There's clearly an absolutely chronic morale issue. Okay, so the, 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 the advance of the Ukrainian advance on the counteroffensive is, is going a bit slower, but I would just go CF Normandy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, or, or just actually, wait. You've got you've got to get through some pretty hefty anti tank ditches, some minefields, all that kind of stuff. That takes time. That's the kind of fiddly bit. But well, once once no, you get past that, I mean, well, you no know, break you can, out. There's no, there's no breakout without the breakthrough. Is the thing. There's no breakout without the breakthrough. So so you know, I, I get a bit frustrated because a lot of these people that are writing about this stuff actually just clearly don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> well, because you know, no, no disrespect to, to journalists and stuff out there, but but they're out there seeing stuff, and, and what they know is what they see. They, you know, I, I don't think most journalists have sat there kind of looking at kind of the theory of war and 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 reading about how things actually work. So you're reporting on what you're seeing, um, and, and you know, self-evidently, it's it's going a bit slower than everyone had hoped. But I wouldn't I wouldn't read anything into that at all. It doesn't doesn't mean anything. But what you but if you're the Ukrainians, what you do is this is a, this is a fantastic time to press on and while there's while confusion, don't interrupt the enemy while he's making a mistake and all that stuff. All that stuff, yeah. I mean, you, you know, but put it this way: the the, the events of the last forty eight hours mm. over this weekend, we're recording it on Sunday morning. That, that's not going to do the Russian forces in Ukraine any favors whatsoever. No. 
I I just wanted to talk about um the uh the podcast you did the other day with David Hepworth, by the way, because it just felt like we were scratching the surface of. of oh of, yes, absolutely. But of but but not just of music, but of culture and technology and cultural change and and all that. You know, d- d- there was just so much that really felt like the tip of an iceberg thing there. And obviously, yeah. Abbey, Abbey Road is a really great place to hang it all on because because of where it sits in 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 later pop music. And also I think what's quite interesting is, is that offers the idea of a continuity without, without, you know, the, the war is, the war is an instant within a, within a cultural continuity rather than a, rather than a moment that sticks out on its own. I just thought just, just talking about, you know, um, you know, when you were talking about photographs and recorded music and, and, uh, uh, and all that sort of stuff, I think well, that moment, suddenly you're capturing that moment, aren't you? Yep. You're listening to history. That's what I said. I, I just never thought about it in those terms until then. But also, I mean, you know, the, and the point David made, and because uh, David Byrne has written a really interesting book about music and technology that I think is uh, um, called How Music Works. Guy from Talking Heads, right? Uh, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. People are, are old and old and gnarly enough to remember the, the talking heads. And he talks about how technology shaped music, you know, the, the idea that, that you, you know, about photograph albums with albums of music and that you'd buy an out, al- literally buy an album, like a photo album that had all the discs in it. That, that, that's what yeah. an album was. Yeah. And him talking about how, when people I've got talk some about of those to my old gramophone, well, well it, it, exactly. When people talk about the th- perfect three minute pop song, that's because that's how much music you could fit on the disc. It's, it's not that three minutes is the perfect length. It's that, that, the technology pushed us into the point where three minutes became the perfect length. So it became the, per- so, be- you know, the same way 45 minutes on an LP. That's the limit of the technology. It's not attention spans. It's that your attention span has been led there by the, by the technology. But also I think, and that idea that, that singers were suddenly under all this pressure because rather than it just, you sing a song and it's gone, it's preserved forever. And apparently that's where vibrato in singing started coming in was when re- recorded music, that uh, came first came along because if you do vibrato right what you're what you're doing is you're not singing in tune you're singing around the note so you're coming out with an average and the ear goes oh he's singing in or she's singing in yes, tune yes, yes. yeah yeah rather yes. than you sing one straight note and you're yeah. slightly out you're, you're flat you're sharp forever so you, you slightly sing, wobble if you wobble you cover the note uh, yeah. exactly uh, uh, and he talks about that so the so the granular level but i thought i thought just what you were saying about photographs and, and records. So records, you know, our relationship, thanks to recorded music, with music has changed. You know, if you think when Beethoven's writing music or, or you know, or jazz musicians are first writing music before it gets recorded, that music, I mean, how often would you hear music before recorded music? How yeah. often would you actually listen to music? I don't know. You'd maybe hear Beethoven's Fifth once in your life twice you'd have to remember it it is absolutely amazing how how we just completely take it for granted now and 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 how i mean what's what's so interesting about in the, in 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 the war is, is you're getting these live performances but people already know the songs because yes. of records and because of radio yeah. what's been interesting for me has been re-listening to all those songs which are incredibly familiar whether yeah. it's you know fun in the middle out in the middle east whether it's yeah, yeah. whether it's uh um could you please oblige of a brand gun when you when you listen to those songs again just how witty they are yeah and, and how funny and, and they are a piece of entertainment yeah it, yeah it's yeah. not a it's a piece of music but it's a piece of entertainment yeah. and what you're doing is when you're ca- capturing you know a live performance a live recording of george formby you are you are absolutely capturing that moment you're capturing that air 
Yeah. And, and, and that's, it's a bit like us having that 1939 sweet pudding wine from the Crimea. Yeah. yeah you're you're yeah. tasting a moment. You're tasting a, a history. You're listening to a moment. And that, and that suddenly made the whole experience of listening to that, that playlist that I put together a whole notch more enjoyable than it, than it was if you're just putting on some songs and just listening to it. But, but it also, it's about cultural change in relationship between art, 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 artifacts in art via technology, via yeah. mass transmission, via yeah. radio, and yeah. then, and then plugged into a war effort, which, which then changes the relationship between everything. Because after all, you're mobilizing art for patriotic aim. Yeah. Um, uh, um, what does that, you know, what does that do to the artist? How does that change the artist's relationship with his audience? How does that change the artist's relationship with his art? And all that's so interesting, which, which actually, there's more I want to talk about after the break after this, because it, it, it this has really got me thinking, thinking that I stumbled across something else that I want to talk about. That's really, Brilliant. really, that, that's really interesting. We'll be back Brilliant. in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weird Ways to Make You Talk with um, Jim and me, and we, we've gone all cultural, I'm afraid. And there's no oiling of brain guns or um, we, well, we know, but we 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 did a bit of geekiness because we were talking about Churchills and the clack of tra tracks true. or whatever. So we've I done mean, that. The wise that just shows how, how kind of you know just how how rich um, an experience is listening to. Well, <laughs> to us, we would, on we would, our, our, our completely disorganised conversation. Well, well, here's here's a bit I've organised. So I've been reading a book called Romantic Modern. Well, you've actually you've, you've prepped. I've done a tiny bit of prep here, Jim. Well done. So, so I was doing um, uh, 
John Robbins is a comedian who's, a, who's a, a wonderfully interesting and clever guy. has a has a podcast called The Moon Under the Water, and the idea is you you pitch your perfect. Part. Yes, and they uh, I went on that, and they they suggested. Yes, someone told me that they'd heard you on that. Yeah, they were reading this, the, uh, and my pub was called Operation Supercharge. By the way, that was the name of the pub. Okay, I need to have a listen to that. <laughs> um, and. They recommended a book called that uh, they were reading anyway, called "Romantic Moderns: English Writers, Artists, uh, and the Imagination" from Virginia Woolf to John Piper, which is about basically the interwar years and then into the war and then afterwards about how people are, you know, because when often when people talk about the war and the idea of England, they go to George Orwell's writing and they look at explicitly political writing about patriotism and the war and how do you square a socialist in English patriotic conscience, you know, blah 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 blah, and that. That was going on in the arts anyways, people trying to invent an idea of an England between the wars. And and then, of course, the war comes and people are people are trying to find at the same time as trying to sort of locate a place of Englishness in the arts. So you've got Vaughan Williams looking at folk music, Lark Ascending, all that sort of stuff. Right. Mm. You've got that, those composers who go to pubs and listen to folk songs and write them down and arrange them. And, and this very self-conscious effort to find an Englishness. In well, and all that Elgar light stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Right. The, and then and there's a, an amazing thing about how the National Gallery, of course, the National Gallery has, has shipped all its art off, but remains a centre for uh, artistic stuff during the war. And there are concerts at the National Gallery. Yes, right? there are. And at, the, and at the MPG, the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, so exactly. Exactly. Right. So Myra Hess is a. Is Myra a Hess, the, the Germanic pianist. Right. And she organises lunchtime col- uh, concerts at the National yes, Gallery. She does. Benjamin Britten, Michael Tippett pulls this committee together and gets, gets sandwiches laid on so that people in their lunch break can. So there's this amazing story. Right. So. She's playing a, a, a quieter variation of Schubert's impromptu in B flat major, one at lunchtime. She hears a flying bomb coming, right? So she plays a tremendous crescendo to cover the noise. <laughs> Her audience did not notice or pretended not to notice that anything untoward was going on. Isn't that amazing? This idea of public art, even in even you know, even at this time, the paintings have all gone, but they're trying to keep the cultural places as places where culture will still happen. And they 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 there are some paintings that they keep. So you've got you know Tintoretto's George and the Dragon, and 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 uh, all, all this sort of and some Turner as well. It's just really really fascinating that there's this attempt to engage people with art. And it's this movement who've been trying to create an idea of Englishness, who are kind of co-opted by the war, but also sort of see it as an opportunity, a, co- a moment where they can be co-opted and inject their idea of Englishness into the arts. It's, it, it, I mean, this, it, it's such an interesting idea. And, you know, like the pop music being picked up and turned into, you know, a, like a tool of patriotic engagement. So this artistic movement finds itself sort of caught in it, really really fascinating well i do you know what we what we need to do is this has just completely reminded me about one of my my favorite filmmakers of all which is humphrey jennings who wrote the who, who, who was a documentary filmmaker before the I've war been reading about humphrey jennings yeah humphrey jennings films are absolutely amazing i mean yeah. really really amazing so there's yeah. a london can take it is the one he did in um during the battle of britain and it's 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 Again, it's also sort of firefighters and stuff. And, and he's out there doing, you know, really yep. filming them in action. Yeah. Um, Words for battle. Y- yeah. Listen to Britain is the one. 
which yeah. you can, which which you can still get and still see and everything. And listen to Britain is absolutely amazing. It has Mara Hess in it, and he later made a film about Mara Hess. But yeah. but it has Mara Hess doing her lunchtime recitals. The window it gives you on Britain in the middle of the war is yeah. is just unbelievable. Then he did this incredible film called The Silent Village, where he it, which is based on Ladici, you know, in in Czechoslovakia, which is raised after the assassination of um, of Heydrich in Prague. He imagines a Welsh mining village or just yeah. a Welsh village where the Germans come in and shoot all the men and yeah. how we do it. And it's unbelievably powerful. Yeah. And, and you know, you and I should just, we should, we should watch one of these and, and dissect it. It's, well, it's, we do it. We do it as a gurgle box for, for on a Monday for the, for the live cast to think that might not. Be well, good. yeah. I mean, it is, it is, they're so good. They're so good. And they're, they're so vivid and it's, it's, it, it's brilliantly filmed, brilliantly narrated, they are. You will absolutely love them. Yeah, yeah. I well, can guarantee it. You're in for such a treat. You can watch them a dozen times. You'll see something new every single time. Little details and the little, as I say, that window on the on on Britain in those years is just incredible. Well, well, what's really interesting is is then is then this book talks about boom in po- in poetry, popular poetry, and anthologies. That poetry anthologies became a big became a big publishing thing during the war. And one of the really big ones is. Archibald Field Marshal Archibald Wavell's Other Men's yeah. Flowers. Yeah, amazing. The story of the, the story of this book is incredible. So, so I bought it. I, I got a, I got a copy. This is all the poetry that Wavell um, could recite to you. It's four hundred pages of poems <laughs> that, that Wavell says he he had to memory. The thing is, is I, I, I've always been a bit. I've always been a you know. I've always kind of not been a not 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 been not infused by, by. I'm not a Wavell man. But when you get into this, this guy's intellectual. And Churchill always said he was the cleverest of the generals, sort of too clever to be a soldier, cleverer than everyone else. That he was, was going to be an academic. He'd taken an academic post at Cambridge, and he's, he was expecting to be a don for the rest of his life. And then the war comes, and he yeah. But this guy, I mean, the, the, so that so this is a, so there's an introduction to the second edition, which a preface to the second edition, which is amazing. He says, "Other men's flowers was a war baby conceived as a relaxation to the mind during campaigns in the East." War babies do not always thrive, nor are they always popular. I mean, so there's this there's this humour to it. I'm naturally gratified that this one has had some success. And he says, um, I take this opportunity to thank all those who have written to me about the anthology. I've much appreciated their kind and helpful comments. A tribute which I greatly valued came in the form of an annotated copy which a friend sent me. The annotations have been made by a soldier who read other men's flowers during the period of his final training in D-Day for Normandy. As he read each poem, he put the date on which and sometimes the circumstances in which he'd read it and added his comments of enjoyment, indifference or dislike. He had finished the volume while crossing to Normandy and fallen in battle shortly afterwards. So th- this is a thing people are, ca- this poetry is a thing that people are carrying with them. I often turn up that copy and read the comments which reveal a fine, somewhat Puritan character and shrewd judgment. I'm proud that my selection should have helped him in those days and that it was on the whole to his taste. This book is absolutely amazing. So, you know, there's a lot of Browning, there's a lot of Kipling, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think kind of the poem you might expect a, a guy growing up in, you know, basically, you know, when, when, when was Wavell born in the, in the 1890s, I think, you know, uh, uh, yeah, 1883 to 1950, right, um, are his dates. So there's lots, lots of Kipling. There's Hilaire Belloc. There's some Samuel Johnson, some Byron, some Browning. You know, it's it's a sort of it's a classic canon of of, of English. Yeah, yeah. And some uh, Ballad of Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde. Really fascinating. But and they're ca- they're categorised, you know, as uh, music, mystery, magic, good fighting. 
Yeah. Love and all that, the call of the wild, conversation pieces, the lightest sight, hymns of hate, rag bag and last post. There's a thread through of what it is to be a soldier and commentary. So throughout the book, there'll be, I first read this poem X, Y, Z. I discovered this at this point. This is what this means to me. You know, as a soldier, no one who's experienced battle wants to write a poem about it. Of course not, because it's because it's horrible. Um, there's an amazing bit where he says, like, Steve Douglas, of course. Yeah, it was, well, yes, exactly. But he says it's very, very rare. He says, you know, if you can write about love. I'll argue with that. Well, he says, if you're, you're a poet, you can love, write about love or battle, which you're going to write about. And then there's a, you know, I remind myself that, that there's one note, which is, you know, always the thing I used to remind myself is no matter, no matter how bad it might be going for me, the, the chap the other side is clearly having a terrible time of it too. And that's what I was console myself in, in times of, in times of struggle, right? What's really amazing about this is he he has an ongoing and active relationship with poetry even as the war's running. Right. So there's a there's a poem called London Under Bombardment by Greta Briggs, which I'll which I'll read in a second. He says, I read these verses in an Egyptian newspaper while fi- flying from Cairo to Bas in Cyrenaica at the beginning of April nineteen forty one to try to deal with Rommel's counterattack. I was uncomfortable in body, for the bomb was cramped and drafty, and in mind, for I knew I'd been caught with insufficient strength to meet a heavy counterattack. Reading this poem and committing it to memory did something to relieve my discomforts of body and mind. So while he's on his way to figure out what to do about Rommel, he's re- <sighs> they just don't make them like that anymore, do they? He's consigning Why this we all- to Why, Well, you've just consigned a whole load of lines to memory. Yeah, but... but, but, but you know, but, why aren't we... Why, don't, why can't... I mean, I can... I can recite about two poems. Well, I, I, you know, I could do you some limericks. I mean, <laughs> dirty limericks. If that's I, could what do you a li- I could do a little bit hardy, I think, and that's yeah. about it. Yeah, there once was a man from Devizes. Right. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is London Under Bombardment by Greta Briggs. So this is what he put to memory in April nine foot. So the idea of this book is 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 Wavell can recite everything in this book. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> Madness. I, who am known as London, have faced stern times before, having fought and ruled and traded for a thousand years and more. I knew the Roman legions and the harsh-voiced Danish hordes. I heard the Saxon revels, saw blood on the Norman swords. But though I am scarred by battle, my grim defender's vow never was I so stately nor so well-beloved as now. The lights that burn and glitter in the exile's lonely dream, the lights of Piccadilly and those that used to gleam down Regent Street in Kingsway may now no longer shine, but other lights keep burning and their splendour too is mine. Seen in the work-worn faces and glimpsed in the steadfast eyes when little homes lie broken and death descends from the skies. The bombs have shattered my churches, have torn my streets apart, but they have not bent my spirit and they shall not break my heart. For my people's faith and courage are lights of London town, which still would shine in legends, though my last broad bridge were down. Wow. I like that. I mean, I really like that. I, I, I love everything that frame, frame, frames the, the, the present in, a, in, a, in its true longevity, if you sort of mean. Consigning that to memory on his way to, you know, we're, we're, also, we're, in, a, we're in his present moment, where, the, where he's thinking... Yeah. I need inspiration. I need I need some mental discipline at this moment. I need to distract myself from how bloody yep. terrible things are. I'll light upon this poem, but and I'll I'll learn it and I'll use it to inspire me. And it's telling me it's a message from London, and yep. obviously it's a message to summon yourself around and all that sort of stuff. It's of course it's partial in its um, stance, yep. but what an extraordinary thing! And this, yeah, amazing. This book, I mean. 
I've always liked Wavell. I just didn't think he was much copper's C and C Middle East. Well, the, it's really. I mean, what you've cl- clearly got here, and it's uh, again, it's the thing Churchill says about him is you know the guy's too the guy's too clever. And I think I think Churchill said that you know that that Tuca and Tuca was like Wavell in the, in that he or Wavell Wavell said that Tuca was like him. You know, as an intellectual, as a poet. This is and this is this was his problem. And I think I, I think. It, it, it's just fascinating, and you get a glimpse into the guy, into the guy's life because there's a poem by a, f- a friend of his who died on the R101, Lord Cardington, who's who's, wow. a, who's a pal of his. So you get connected into his life, into his present, yeah, and his his cultural hinterland. And I, and I, I, um, that is a bestseller at the time in the war. Is amazing. It's part it? of the cultural life that's going on, you know. And this is obviously we're past a foreign country there's no telly people's relationship with me mass media and everything is, is quite different to ours but the fact that this exists as a as a i, I mean i was compl- by your your conversation with david i was just thinking well we've got the culture is a thing we've we've not really we've not really talked about at all on the podcast there, there is a there is a sort of nostalgia that that creeps through the Ministry of Information and how they how yeah. they're trying to kind of propagandize the war effort. There is this sort of you know Britain yeah. is is homely and it's warm ale yeah. and never on willow and yeah. rolling hills. You know, in the First World War, it's your king needs you, your country yeah. needs you, and it's you're going to be shamed into joining up if you don't. You're a coward, and yeah, you're but that's them drawing them. on this. That's them drawing on this English this idea of creating an England between the wars. This idea, right? Of right. This is my point. And then yeah. in the Second World War, you've got Frank Newbold. You know, and I love his art. He did those sort of amazing screen prints of kind of sort of England fight for it now, Britain fight for it now. And there's a picture of a farmer with his with his sheepdog wandering over the South Downs of the sort of chalk downland. And there in the distance is the, is the South Coast and you can see the English Channel. And it's just, you know, and there's a farmstead nestling amongst the elms in the foot of the of the valley. And, and there's another one with Salisbury Cathedral on, actually. And it's, 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 it's evoking a, a sense of this is worth fighting for because we're good, homely people, you know, where there's democracy, where, where people can wander freely and, and you haven't got sort of rabid Nazis. And- Whereas, in fact, Britain is urbanised, industrialised, has, you know, uh, uh, what you would call, what you could call a proletariat, you know, all these, all these things. And the, the Second World War, of course, you've, you know, you're, you're, there's this romantic idea that the mo- romantic moderns have spun in between the wars that then gets co-opted for propaganda reasons. Yes. This idea, you know, and, and the metro... But it's, the metro England, it's the England of Adelstrop, isn't it? The, exactly. the Edward Thomas poem, you know, this sort of idea that it's all sleepy and you can sort of, you know, you can hear the distant bleating of lambs and the buzz of a bumblebee kind of passing by you and this sort of cool summer air and all this kind of yeah. stuff. I mean... <laughs> which coincidentally is exactly the England that I'm interested in, <laughs> even to this day. I mean, that's yeah. in my romantic ideals. That's exactly what you know. That's why I live in Wiltshire. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but you know, it, but it's, it's it's also the England of 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 J.R. Tolkien and the Shahs. It, it, it's 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 Sarehole, isn't it? His his, yeah. his village, but, which subsequently but, then gets incorporated by Birmingham. But but then Metroland, which is the the massive extension of London in between the wars, you know, which runs down which runs down the arteries of the of the underground and you know yes they're sold as english villages that you can get get to from get to town from yes you know that the, the, the self-consciously built in mock tudor style that there's an idea of in england even yes. in the urban areas that's being sold to people as an ideal form of living well yes and it's and, and that's still there when they're making the battle of britain film in 1940 because when when um ian mcshane gets gets picked up 
uh, um, by by Robert Shaw, the the squadron commander, and taken back to his house. What's he got? He's got a mock Tudor kind of, you know, he's got one of those sort of lead lattice window cottages in the countryside near Biggin Hill or something. Uh, and you know, it's, it's every image of what we think Britain is like, and it's the same with sort of bed knobs and broomsticks. That kind of fictional village is absolutely the Frank Newbold view of England, isn't it? But what's interesting, though, is with with this with this artistic movement with the Romantic moderns, is if the war hadn't come, would this idea of England been just a thing within within art, within the literary within literary uh, imaginations, and fizzled out with due time? Whereas, in fact, when the war comes, there needs to be there needs to be a sort of invigoration of this idea, or it's one of the things that gets co-opted. Well, but but the paradox is, of course, is is at exactly the same time that this this image is being reinvigorated. It's also being undone by industrialization, industrialization of farming. You know, I mean, we talked about this before, but this idea, you know, I mean, the reason we've got got chronic soil erosion now is because of. You know, it started in the Second World War, where we suddenly started pumping vast numbers of, of of chemicals into our soil and killing stuff rather than making stuff live. And and you know, now we're now we're kind of you know, we've got all these regenerative farming practices going on now, where people are trying to sort of unpick all that. But 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 that's the irony. The war, whilst at the same time you're kind of exaggerating that that ideal, you're also unpicking it. On the other hand, by your massive increase in industrialization again yeah well i mean it's the, it's a but it's a propagandistic sleight of hand isn't it you're, you're of telling people they're fighting for bucolic uh england and in order to do that which is a tolkien tolkien idea that it, yeah that but you, but but also i'm i'm you know i'm going back to my novel that i've I, I started during lockdown and i've got to finish it this summer and you know that is a farm in the countryside in england during the war and it's a family you, you know, but the whole point is to chart that revolution of of of, of the agriculture, the second agricultural revolution, I call it, that took place in the Second World War in Britain. But it's also building on that ideal, the the, the, the Frank Newbold version of of England, and exactly what you've just been talking about. Uh, but but I want to make that contradiction, that conflict, come a bit bit sharper. Fascinating I, stuff. Really, so really, really, really interesting. I, mean, I, um, I would. I think we need to. I think we need to find an. You know, because we talked to Caroline Shenton about about you know removing the art, hiding the art, protecting the art, and the you know the plan to do that. We talked to her a couple of years ago, didn't we? About what they did, what they did at all the galleries, and how they how they evacuated the art, stuck it in tunnels near Bath or wherever. But I, I think it would be really. I think we need to. I think we need to dig up an art historian or something. We need to find someone to talk about. What, what, all this stuff. Well, we've got, we've got. I mean, in the pipeline, we've got, we've also yes. got Philip Mole coming yep. to the Imperial War Museum with us, um, and he's promised to do that yep. this, you know, this side of Christmas. So I think when your when your play's done and we're all kind of breathing a little bit more easily, then then we should do that for the years out. But I agree. I think an art historian would be really, really good. I think a thing to talk about will be, you know, the the Brains Trust radio program. Yeah. I've never listened to any of those. I want yeah. to listen to, I, I should listen to some. 10 million listeners a week listening to clever people discuss, you know, the intellectual engagement that's going on in the war. Can you still get those then? Are they now on iPlayer? Well, you can certainly see Humphrey Jennings. I mean, you can buy, you can buy DVDs, whatever those are. Um, um, but you can still get those. Uh, but presumably it's on YouTube or something. JB Priestley, you know, you've got. Yes. This this sort of idea of the pub, public intellectual and everything. Well, we should read those J.B. Priestley um that that book. It wow, what's it called? Um, when he goes dry, he goes goes on on his travels all around England, doesn't he? In nineteen forty. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 
Amazing. Nice. And, and I've, I've got a copy of it. I've literally got a copy of it. I, this this stuff really, really gets me going, though. I, it really, really does. I, I just think all this, this the, the whole idea of how the how the war yeah. is changing people and the, the the paradox between what is presented and what is reality and all that, I just think it's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, and then we should have a look at what they're doing in, in, in Germany, of course, which is which is actually, weirdly, is not so very different because it's all about the whole the German mantra, isn't it? You know, strength through joy and all that and and um, yeah. uh, and sort of going hiking and seeing nature and, you yeah. know, and then there's all those weird films they make in the 1930s, you know, of sort of, you know, forests and Aryan nights and, yeah. you know, sprites and all this kind of stuff. And, it's, you know, frankly, it's not a million miles from Lord of the Rings and Arthurian legends and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, but again, though, you're harking back to a kind of sort of pure time where you yes know, yeah well and, and we should have a look at that as well ideas of innocence that that predate um yeah industry and modernity yeah uh, anyway well it's i mean god, god. Uh, it, it, the bottomless pit strikes again um thanks yes, everyone it does. thank goodness thank don't goodness. forget don't forget 8th to 10th september we have ways fest um uh, we'd love to see as many of you there i mean if all the if everyone who listens to this podcast came that would be fantastic um, yeah, we'll be good. We have waysfest.co.uk is our site. It's a weekend of war chats, um, films, uh, tanks. It's, I mean, you know, Jim was talking about Tankfest earlier on. I mean, we I think we rivaled Tankfest for sheer hardware and roaring, the roaring, yeah, stint, yeah, a lot roaring of smell of diesel and all that. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Living history and all this sort of stuff. And we'd love to see you all there. Day tickets as well as um, uh, uh, the whole weekend. Camping. Um, are the SAS coming, as it were? I think. Yeah, les parachutistes. Yeah. Um, so they're, um, yes, yeah, they are. They're, they're, they're coming. They're doing kind of sort of, you know, it's Houndsworth bull basket, that yeah. kind of stuff. Northwest France, no, Northwest Europe, 1944, um, with a little bit of sort of maquis thrown in. Hiding in a hedge. Um, and they're going to be hiding in the woods, and there are woods no, there, and that's the where they're going to be, and they're, they take it all very seriously, and that's going to be good. We've got lots of other stuff, lots of stuff for kids as well. Um, we're looking yeah. into getting, um, I saw these, um, this thing called Armour Tech, which are these scale models of, of tanks and, and uh, armoured fighting vehicles from the Second World War. They're, the detail is absolutely incredible, and I suppose they're about kind of two foot long, something like oh, that no. three foot long uh, and they beetle about and they're great fun to have a go on you can sort of have a play with those i think we're gonna oh, get wow. those there if you've listened to the podcast regularly um uh we are theming the whole thing around 1943 pretty much because it's the it's the forgotten year of world war Two. it's the it's it, so you know if you're, when if you're adolf, adolf hitler came unstuck <laughs> exactly the, the nazi war machine ran team. off the rails exactly and we've got we've got people stuff themed around that around all the campaigns around all the big events um, we've got serious stuff we've got fun stuff serious stuff fun stuff um it's a it's a convivial weekend for all and we'll stop yeah. the hard sell there because we're not like those podcasts where they go yeah you really must you really yeah. must no we're not hard stuff. selling we're not hard selling podcasts still we don't do no, that it could be our problem <laughs> we will we will see you all soon thanks very much for listening um and don't forget to put your tickets simple as that hard sell right at the end bye bye cheerio